Welcome to the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Welcome once again to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast, everyone. We are joined this week once again by CEO and co-founder of Bean Ninjas, Meryl Johnston, and she's giving us, as usual, another really transparent look into some of her own practices, what she's learned and what she does. And this week specifically, we're talking about her personal finance practices. Meryl is a fan of the Barefoot Investor Nine Steps to Financial Freedom. So we're going through those nine steps and she's discussing how she's applied them in her own personal finance and other steps that she has not yet implemented that she plans to. So again, it's a very transparent conversation where Meryl is just being so open and so honest to help us learn from her. And you know, you'll remember in previous episodes, she talked about how her personal financial best practices are what has helped her to reduce greatly the stress that she felt when she started her own business. And so this is going a little bit further into that and discussing in depth her own personal practices and what she's done in order to start her business with as little financial stress as possible and how it continues to make her a better CEO day to day even now. So let's get right into it. It's the Bean Ninjas Podcast. another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. I'm Elizabeth Powers here with my co-host, CEO of Bean Ninjas, uh, Meryl Johnston. How are you, Meryl? I'm good. Thanks, Elizabeth. I've decided to change up my schedule a little bit. With, with As you know, on Friday mornings, I miss out on my morning surf. So I've actually scheduled a surf with my brother for directly after the podcast recording today. Oh, nice. Now, I didn't know you had a brother who is also a surfer. How often do you guys get to surf together? Well, usually we try and meet once a week and our first priority is to go for a surf. But if if there's no waves, which sometimes there aren't, then we'll go mountain bike riding or play a game of squash. He actually lives in Brisbane, which is the next city. It's about an hour from where I live. Wow. Oh, that's nice. Well, you're officially the coolest CEO that I know. So, <laughs> um, great. So, okay. So we will get right into it because you have a surf date that I definitely don't want you to miss. It's a great way to start a Friday. So we'll get into it today. We're going to be talking about personal finances. That's another topic that you are willing to be quite transparent about. And I know we have to start the episode with a little disclaimer. So I'm going to give that to you and let you give the disclaimer that you need to give to our audience about our topic today. Yes, as an accountant, I'm not a licensed financial advisor, which means that the topics that we're covering in this episode are for general purposes. And so they can't be taken as individual advice. So to seek a professional if you do want advice on your personal situation. So we've got that out of the way and yes. and now we can jump into it. <laughs> Excellent. Now, I know that you are a big fan of and, and a lot of what we'll talk about today is the Barefoot Investor Nine Steps. Tell me a little bit about that. So the Barefoot Investor, he's a guy, Scott Pape, but he's also, it's also a book that he's written. And it's my favorite. I do a lot of reading, but this is my favorite book on personal finances and the reason for that is because it's so practical, common sense, and 
really easy for you don't have to be an accountant or anyone that is even interested in finances to apply his methodology. And so I thought it would be interesting for our audience to talk through his nine steps and I'll explain them and then I'll just give you my personal view or some of the things that I'm doing in my own life around these nine steps. Excellent. Yeah. So let's start with step one, which I know step one is to schedule a monthly barefoot date night. Now, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it sounds a little <laughs> scary. What is a barefoot date night? There, he's basically saying that you need to put time into your calendar to look at your finances and he's suggesting at least monthly and to make it fun. So It doesn't have to be a meeting with sitting down in front of the computer with spreadsheets. Instead, go out to a restaurant, take your pen and paper, meet with your partner or your friend and and go through and talk about finances and do it in an enjoyable way, but make sure that it's happening on a regular basis. So it's kind of taking the dread that so many people have about just the idea of even talking about finances with your partner. And and for most people, I think that they're often you find that that's one of the biggest things people argue about is money and finances. And so there's already this sort of inherent dread on the whole topic. So what he's saying is make it fun. Don't make it where you have to sit down with a spreadsheet and receipts and like question each other to death. Just go out on a date, have some wine and, and chat about it. And let's just be transparent and make it fun. Is this something that you are currently able to implement in your life? So we, my partner and I did have in our calendar, we were trying to do it weekly as a lunch. And my lesson from that is that sometimes that was just too often and other commitments would come up and we wouldn't prioritize it. So we, I mean, I do look at finances every week, but I think it's really important to include your partner in that conversation too, so that it's really clear about what your goals are together. And so while I I feel like we do that, we're not, and we did try with the lunch meetings. I think we need, that's something that I actually need to set up again. And so, and with this podcast, I'm not wanting to approach it as though everything that I'm doing is perfect. It's more, let's talk through these steps and I'll share what has worked for me and, and what hasn't. So some of these things I might not be doing well myself. Yeah. And I, I can see how weekly is something that would easily be pushed aside because there, you think, oh, well, we'll just do it next week. You know, we'll cancel this week and do it next week. So I can see how that easily gets pushed aside. But it's definitely, would you say, bi-monthly, once a month? What do you think is going to be the most important, at the very least, how often do you need to have this date night? I think we're going to try monthly mm-hmm. now. We, could, we couldn't maintain weekly, so we'll do monthly and then really commit to it and, and make it fun. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll have to report back to everyone about, <laughs> about how that goes. We're going to hold you to it. I want to know in a month that you've had your first barefoot date night. Um, and I think that's fair. I think one month, you know, nowadays there are plenty of apps and we can get into if you have any apps that kind of keep you on your toes with um, with your finance planning and sort of bank accounts and whatnot. But um, yeah, I think uh, once once a month, I think is a good starting point. And then once that's comfortable and sort of the fear has been removed, if it, if you need to increase the frequency within that month, I think that would be a great way to go. Step number two is setting up buckets. What are buckets? So the theory here is that it can be overwhelming when you're tracking all of your spending and, and money coming in on a line-by-line basis and budgeting for everything. And so instead of having a budget for telephone costs, a budget for food, a budget for this and that, which most of the time people don't seem to stick to anyway, this is just a big big picture approach. So he's saying 
you want to have what he calls the blow bucket for blowing on your regular living expenses. So that's for things like rent and food, electricity, car costs. There's a second bucket, which is grow, and that is to build long-term security and wealth. And then the third bucket is a mojo bucket, and that is really to give you a feeling of security so that if something happens, it's safety money, and you keep that in a separate bank account so you can't even see it when you log into your daily banking, and that's where you might start to accumulate a number of months of living costs over a period of time so that if something happens, you know that you've got that money tucked away for those emergencies, and it's different to where the type of investments or where you would hold the money in the grow bucket. So just to recap, there was the three buckets. One is blow and you know you just take a percentage of your income and that goes into that bucket to cover costs, your living costs. A grow bucket, which is where you're saving for, for investments. And then the mojo bucket, which is just a safety bucket of savings that are there for an emergency. And that's the bucket that I kind of want to ask a couple of follow-up questions about because I've heard um, a couple of different theories about at what point do you dip into that safety money, which he calls the mojo bucket. Um, I know I've had some friends that have a fair amount of savings, but if there's something that's maybe you know, five or eight thousand dollars that they weren't expecting, you know, maybe a medical expense, they they I've had I've seen people do two different things. I've seen some people go get a credit card so that they can keep the actual cash that they have in their mojo or safety money account. And then I've seen other people just dip into that safety account. What what's the threshold for that, do you think? So I think in in my opinion, that's what the so the that's what the account is for. If you have an unexpected medical cost, then it, it is to cover those kind of things. And I'd also look at the interest rate. So you're probably earning interest because it's likely to be in a high interest account or hopefully you, you put it in, in there. But the interest that you're earning on that is going to be a lot less than the interest, the high interest rate that you would pay on a credit card. So generally, I would try and eliminate use of credit cards unless you're paying them. I mean, I do have credit cards, but I pay them off every month. So I'm never paying any interest. Mm-hmm. And I think credit cards are a bad form of debt or, or funding purchases so if you can avoid them then i think it's better that if you can yeah absolutely i agree with you on that uh okay so step number three uh is domino your debts what does that mean so i I like i can picture this so he's basically saying line up all of your debts and then knock them down one by one and i i like or he kind of describes that there's Good debt and, and bad debt. So some debt you want to pay off faster than others. So things like your mortgage or student loans, leave that till last. But start off with all of the small debts and just and pay them off. And gradually you'll you'll get momentum and, and domino all of those debts. And I think that will feel amazing when you're debt free. And something that relates to this would also be car loans. And there's actually there's a blog post that the guys from the Tropical MBA podcast have written about this. And they call it the or they call it the entrepreneur the entrepreneur mobile. And basically, as entrepreneurs, they're recommending that you buy or they they say what is the cheapest car your ego can afford. <laughs> basically, saying don't waste money on a car while you're trying to grow a business. And that I, I will link to that blog post in the show notes. But that's got some calculations in there and some recommendations about uh, paying cash for 
cars and and how to go about reducing what you're spending on something like a car while you're establishing your business. So an interesting read. That is so funny because it is kind of, I, I worked in Silicon Valley for a while and it, and it was just kind of this little joke like, oh yeah, he's, he's, his startup just got some funding. So he just got that car and you could kind of always identify those guys by the car that they were driving. So it's kind of funny that they have an entire blog post about that. And it's true. I mean, you really do have to kind of be careful about, you know, what type of money you're spending on something that's not going to turn around and make you money or an increase in value. And cars really do that. So um that's that's funny i'm i'm really ready to read that blog post i think it'll give me a good chuckle having worked in silicon valley um step number four is buy your home now i'm kind of surprised that they got to buy your home so quickly i mean i see what they're doing um you know with steps one through three which i'm like okay those are good i can handle those i can pay down my debt slowly with the dominoes i can start putting some money in savings but now i'm buying a home so fast Um, Tell me a little bit about how the author has set this up and your experience with it. Why does it work? I mean, is it as fast as as step number four or steps number three take 10 years? How does this work? I think so when he's saying buy your home, his rule around that is to have saved a 20% deposit. So that could take many years to save up that deposit. But I think he's got it as step number four so that you're thinking about that now because if you don't have a goal, if you're not trying to save up a 20% deposit, then it's probably easy to waste that money on something else. So if you know that that's what you're aiming for, to to buy a home and you need that 20% deposit, it might change the decisions that you're making around spending. And is I don't, I don't know that this is necessarily saying whether buying a home is a good or a bad investment because the market, sometimes the property market is hot and everything's increasing in value. Sometimes it's not and the market crashes and there are differences in things like risk profiles with property and shares. So I think step four is less about the type of things that you should be investing in, but just set yourself a goal in terms of savings. And then in a lot of countries, including Australia, there are tax incentives. So capital, there's a capital gains tax exemption in Australia if you do own a home. So there can be tax reasons that that is effective as well. But it was interesting in my case, I waited, I was only just very recently, in fact, we've talked about it on the podcast. I only recently purchased my first home and that was a conscious choice that I made while friends around me have been buying houses for 10 years or more. And I was sometimes the only one that wasn't, but I I wanted to have that cash flow available for business and so I think that some of these steps can be slightly different for business owners in terms of whether you need to have some working capital available for your business. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's an important um, point to make is as much as people always say, oh, buy a house, you know, invest in a house. You want to own property. That's the best thing to do with your money. That's not true across the board. And depending on, like you said, the housing market in the area where you're purchasing at the time that you're looking to purchase and what you're doing with your business life and what kind of savings you have after you've saved up this 20%. And then too, you know, I have aging parents and you know, they have a nice big house and, you know, they've got some people telling them, oh, you should just buy a smaller house. And then other people suggesting, no, just buy a condo because at your age, you don't want a lawn and a roof and plumbing that you have to deal with. You want 
to have a homeowners association that handles a lot of those things for you. So um, definitely not saying across the board buying a house is the best thing to do with your money. It's definitely something that you have to look into um, personally and where you are in your life and your career goals and your savings. So I love that that you made that um, apparent because so many people just, oh, no, you, should, you have to buy property. That's the way to invest. Invest in property. And it's not always that way. Um, step number five is increase your super to 15%. And super is Australian-specific language, but it's similar to a 401k in America. Mm-hmm. And in Australia, there's tax reasons, well, there can be, for putting money into super. There's different uh, tax rates that superannuation funds pay. And so that's one of the reasons. And I think also Scott's argument is that if you set up so that your wages or the if you're paying yourself through a business and it's going directly into the superannuation fund, soon you won't even know that you've missed it. The money's gone straight there. You never saw it. And you're gradually building, building an investment profile there. And I wanted to talk about superannuation as it relates to business owners. And I think that a, a mistake that many business owners make is that they don't pay themselves wages or they pay themselves through another form like a distribution and so they're not paying themselves superannuation and they could have a business for 20 or 30 years and if they don't make good decisions with their investments, then they might not have a retirement fund. So I'd actually would recommend – actually, I probably can't make recommendations, but what I do in my case is pay myself a wage and have superannuation gradually accruing now mm-hmm. and I think that that is important. Yeah, very smart. I love that. Thank you for mentioning that. Step number six is boost your mojo to three months. So tell me, how's that work? Is that something that you're currently doing? And and how do you, what do you think is the best way to go about that? This was something that I I suppose I've always been a saver. So since I was 10 years old or when I had pocket money, I was always saving. And so for me, Having a, I, or I had a Mojo account by default because I'd been saving for many, many years before I started my business. But something that it did help me with, so I had more than six months of living expenses saved up before I started my business. And in the early days, that was really helpful to me in having a buffer and knowing that the money was there. But I actually also, when I wasn't earning enough, paid myself a small amount pay myself an extra $200 a week out of that savings account just so I didn't feel bad about overspending every week. Right, right. So smart. I love that. Yeah, that was actually a mindset thing. It was only after a few months of feeling down on myself when actually I I shouldn't have been because I was reinvesting money in the business, which was why I wasn't paying myself enough to cover living expenses. But it made me really uncomfortable because I had already always been a saver. And so that small, it was really just a mindset change. Um, but it made me okay with, with, with investing in the growth of my business. And that is so smart too. I love the point that you just made that, you know, there was some almost, you know, a little bit of maybe self-loathing is, is a 
is an extreme way to explain it, but you were hard on yourself, um, you know, about how you were handling things and having that mojo actually was able to rescue you from just some of that internal dialogue that you had going on, which is not something that I think of when I think of a savings account, but it, it was, you know, it was timely for you and definitely, I think, made a difference in how you're able to run your business because I know that whether you're a CEO or just running the business of your household, if you are in a constant mindset of, worrying about what you're spending and whether you should be spending it. You know, any amount of stress is going to decrease um, your ability to think critically and analyze things um, in a fair and logical way. So I think that's a really smart um, note, not for for everyone, but especially for CEOs or um, those starting out their, their companies and running young businesses. Step number seven is get the banker off your back. Yes, please tell me, how do we do this? <laughs> this relates to having, so if you have a home loan, And I think often once we've set something up, we can get complacent and really we should be, and this is one example, but I think this could be applied to lots of different scenarios, looking to lower the interest rate. So that might be renegotiating the loan or it might just be a matter of making extra repayments. So trying to pay off your mortgage as quickly as possible. So in the same way that you're trying to save up that 20% deposit, to buy a house, if you have bought a house and you have a mortgage, what can you do to really pay that down quickly so that you have more freedom? And there was actually just a couple of quotes that I wanted to come back to that tie in with both step seven but also step six. And these have come off. These have come from the Barefoot Investors blog. And so one was around research from Harvard, Princeton, where they found that something that has a measurable impact on your happiness is actually savings, which is funny. I'd never thought of that before, but I think it must reduce stress levels. Absolutely. That would reduce my stress levels. If I knew that I had three, six, 12 months, you know, because kind of like what you were just saying, you know, it's, it's even if you never actually dip into it and spend it, you know, even if you don't find yourself three months with no income, knowing that it's there, kind of gives you the opportunity to exhale and think about something else, you know, and, and focus on something else. So I can definitely see how that's true. I love that they thought to study that. <laughs> yeah. And it really ties in with a being value, which is around freedom. So the next quote is, um, they've gone on to say that the reason for that is because savings equals freedom. So when you've got money in the bank, you're free to live life on your own terms and you have the power, you call the shots. And I really like that quote too. And as I said, that ties back into one of the three Beanage's core values. And one of those is freedom, which comes back to having control over your own destiny. So it's not just about saving a bit of money. It's about creating freedom for yourself. So money can't buy you happiness, but it can help you feel the happiness that's available to you in your life. (laughs) It can free you up to feel that instead of feeling stress. Now, I think those are really great quotes. And it's true. Knowing that you don't have to stress about paying this month's bills, next month's bills, next quarter's bills, it does give you freedom. Um, it gives you freedom to focus on other things. It gives you freedom to be creative. I, um, I am an artist is one of my hobbies and 
anytime I have, you know, to really stress out about something like finances or, you know, something that is a regular thing, I have two things that I absolutely loathe. One is balancing my bank account and the other is grocery shopping. (laughs) (laughs) I'm one of those people that thinks the grocery store doesn't make sense. There's no food. It's just a bunch of ingredients to make food in there and I don't cook. So it stresses me out. (laughs) But anytime I go and I get my groceries for the week and it's done, I'm like, okay, now I can focus on this painting that I've been wanting to do or this project around my house. And so I think it's the same with having that mojo money in the bank. It frees you up to put your energy and thinking and priorities into something else. And that is that is freedom. So I love that. Excellent. Okay, so we talked about um, step number seven. Step number eight is nail your retirement number. What does that mean? What's a retirement number? So what do you need to retire on? And when we're in our 20s or 30s, often we're not really thinking about retirement and what that number might be. But in entrepreneurship communities, there's a, a, a term called, or a theory, the cult of early retirement. And that's about people trying to create freedom in their lives now so that they can choose to retire at 30 or 40. And it's more about creating the choice. Many of them love working. So they're not actually going to retire, but it's about creating the choice that they can continue working or not. And so there's different different ways that you could calculate that number. And again, we'll link to some some blog posts around that. But there's a number, there's a, a number and, and whatever that is, which is what you would need to cover your living costs, provide for your family if you were living from investments. And there's another article that I like that kind of ties in or ties this topic into entrepreneurship. And it's called The Cult of Early Retirement versus The Cult of, of Entrepreneurship. And so that article talks about the cult of early retirement, which is really about living frugally and and saving every penny to create early retirement or freedom. And then it's looking at the other side of that, which is doing some of those things around paying off debt and living off less. So not buying things that you don't need, but instead of trying to save 50% of your income, it's about creating a business that provides the financial freedom so that you can retire or it's more about that retirement choice rather than actually retiring. Sure. I love that. Um, step number nine is about leaving a legacy. Um, and I think, you know, legacy means something different for everyone. How have you, or how do you plan to, um, implement step number nine in your life? Well, I haven't got to step number nine yet, (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's really important to have it there. And, the reason for that is steps one to eight are all about finances and what can you do for yourself and your family. And I think step nine, leave a legacy. So what do you want to be remembered for? What do you stand for? That is a good reminder to us that when when we leave this life, it's not going to be the house that we own or the money that we have in the bank that we'll be remembered for. It's, it'll be something else, the relationships or how we've helped other people. So I think that this is just a good reminder that while having our finances in order can reduce a lot of stress in our life and can create freedom, that we also need to have something else in life that we want to be remembered for. And I think that's what step nine, leave a legacy, is all about. And I guess I'm still working on that one. Yeah. Well, and I think too that anytime you take 
take advantage of the opportunity to think of something beyond and bigger than yourself and your life is an opportunity for you to find um, not necessarily a new purpose, but more purpose um, and to reaffirm the purpose that you have in your life. And so I think, you know, kind of always having, you know, the idea of your legacy and what you want to be remembered for and what you want to be known to have stood for, what do you want to leave behind that impacts the world and your family and generations beyond yours um, is is not just a noble thing. I think that for a lot of people, once they really start um, gearing their mindset and their actions and their plans toward a legacy, it really kind of helps them define the rest of their path. So when you get to that point where you're kind of like, I don't know which direction I want to go in from here, I think legacy is a good thing to think about because I think it will a lot of times guide you. Um, so tell me about, are there ratios that are recommended for buckets? Do you have ratios that you think makes sense for someone in your position? I think it's harder when you're in your first couple of years of entrepreneurship because it's probably going to be difficult for you to save because you're wanting to reinvest in your business. And so my comment there would be before you start a business, I think you can really set yourself up in the years before while you're working as an employee to set up that mojo account. Mm -hmm. And then I'd also say don't be too hard on yourself in the first couple of years in business. You're probably not going to be paying yourselves a big wage so you might not be able to apply these ratios. And then when you do get to that point and you are paying yourself a regular wage, then the Barefoot Investor is recommending that about 60% of your income is used on living costs. He's not saying that you need to save the rest. He's saying, well, save about 20% and then splurge. So have some money that is set aside for short-term fun, like going to concerts or buying clothes or whatever it is, and 10% yeah. that is there for holidays and other things so he's saying go out and, and enjoy life but yes. just be be mindful of your money and try and reduce costs where you can and think about your retirement but you need to live life now as well and enjoy what you're doing today not in not just life in 20 years time yeah absolutely because I think you know anytime that it's where you don't give yourself license to live and have fun and to have weekends when you splurge and to take trips and enjoy life, that whatever plan you're on that doesn't include a realistic percentage for those types of uh, events and activities, it's not going to last. <laughs> no one can stand to live, you know, for years without taking a trip and buying clothes and going out to dinner. Um, so if you if you don't have a a fair budget for that, then whatever budget you have is temporary. It's just not going to work. You have to live. <laughs> and I think that philosophy can be applied to life as well as an entrepreneur because it can feel like, oh, I should put everything on hold for the next five years while I grow my business. But I don't think you're actually being the best version of yourself if you do that. And I'm doing a program called Peak Persona at the moment. And I've got a couple of other B-Ninjas that are doing the program too. And a lot of that is about creating time for yourself so that you can perform the best that you can in, in, in your work life, but also at home. And so it is about taking time every day to exercise, to eat well, to drink enough water, to get enough sleep. And there's a whole lot of other things. There's about 30 little, um, over a period of 30 days, it builds up to 30 little things that you can do in your life, even now while you're super busy as as an entrepreneur running a business or even as a, an employee about putting yourself first now, not building a business for five years and then worrying about your health. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I think that's a message that 
unfortunately has gotten lost when we, you know, look at some of, you know, the world's leading CEOs and, and creative minds who've made amazing things that we now wouldn't know how to live without. And I think a lot of times the journalism that focuses on their story is all about, you know, oh, they worked 80, 90 hours a week and they never saw their kids and they, you know, they tell you all of these things that they didn't do. And we have a tendency to think that's how we need to be to be to find our version of success. And I think that's such a flawed version of the truth because no one can live very long um, if you don't have some sort of balance and you have to nourish yourself. And um, I think especially too, as women, you know, especially I, I don't have kids. I have a lot of friends with kids and, you know, they're very hard on themselves about they're not spending enough time with their kids or they don't go to enough baseball games with their kids. And there's just always something else you could do for someone else. Um, and we tend to put ourselves last on the list. And I think that, like you said, that's not, you're not doing yourself, your business, your family, any favors, and you kind of have to shut off all of the, you know, self-loathing and and voices in your head that tell you you're not doing enough or you're not enough or you shouldn't take the time off. You should take it. You are doing enough. <laughs> you deserve a Absolutely. break. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, now tell me, so one of the things um, I believe in uh, the same book, they talk about um, insurance or and maybe it may have been you mentioned this to me before because I don't remember which one of you it was, but I know there's there's some information about insurance for things you can't afford to lose. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, this is my own philosophy. We've in the the first part of this podcast episode, we've talked about the barefoot investor and and his nine steps. And something that I wanted to touch on was around risk management, which is a, a pet topic of mine, and that comes back to insurance. And I think it's really important to insure things that you can't afford to lose. So. If you have purchased a house, then you probably can't afford to replace it if it burns down. So you, I think it's important to insure against things like that or travel insurance if it's unlikely. Or medical expenses overseas could be very expensive. And so it would make sense to insure against those risks. Whereas, say, something like losing an iPhone, you probably could afford to replace it. And the insurance companies have worked out the probability of that happening and so in the long run, you're probably going to lose on that kind of insurance. Mm -hmm. So if you can afford to replace it, then you might be better off not taking that insurance. But but you have to be prepared to wear that risk. So I've, I've made that choice previously where when I was a renter in a share house a number of years ago, I chose not to take home and contents insurance and chose not to pay that premium. And we did get robbed. And I, so I had to pay to replace everything myself. But I didn't really own that much stuff. So right. while... It hurt that year. In the long run, I probably still feel like I made the right decision in terms of not paying the insurance, even though at the time friends were laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, no, you're not that person that didn't get the insurance. But I think that makes sense because I'm thinking of when I, you know, had roommates and you're right, you, you, had a, you have your clothing and if you have some valuable insurance, you're probably not keeping it in a flat with a lot of roommates. <laughs> if you have va yeah, valuable exactly. jewelry, I should say. Um, but yeah, same thing. I, I had the same situation where I had, you know, kind of an inexpensive smaller TV because it was just in my room. 
and I had my bed and a couple pieces of furniture. Um, and so my electronics were stolen. But yeah, it's definitely by the time I added up what a year's worth of renter's insurance would have cost me versus what it cost me to replace the TV and the DVD player, yeah, I still saved money on that. So I think that's a really um, good point that you made. Anything else that you typically haven't invested in that most people kind of assume you have to have? It's just what everyone does is they have this. Um, not that I can think of, but I, but I did just want to point out with insurance, the, the main point there wasn't necessarily well, is to get insurance to mitigate your risks, but it is just to think through what you actually need to insure. So just because someone else is saying that you need insurance on something, actually think through whether it, the, the, the numbers make sense, mm. but definitely do think about what your big risks are. And so if you are, if you do run a business and you're the sole provider, then maybe you do need some kind of insurance to protect your family against you getting sick or, or getting injured. And so it's really about there's people apply risk management to business situations, but also I'd apply it to your personal situation as well. And what are the major risks to you and your family and, and how can you mitigate those? Gotcha. Yeah, really good, good information, really good point to clarify as well. Um, tell me a little bit about um, your own um, views and what touch on a little bit about investing. So I wouldn't say that I'm any kind of expert investor and I've dabbled a little bit in shares over the years and now I'm a homeowner and I also manage superannuation. So here I didn't want to present myself as an expert on investing, but I think that if we're talking about personal finances, then we do need to mention investing because if you're making all of these good decisions around your money, you've built up the Mojo account, you've saved up the 20% deposit for your home, and then the next step when you have saved up additional money is, okay, well, where do you invest that? And you might have a small business, and so that would be a major investment. But one of the theories of investing is around diversification, So, and that's about spreading your risk. And if all of your money is tied up in a business, then maybe you're not as diversified as you could be. And so other areas that you can invest would be in things like shares. And as I'm not an investing expert myself, I'm going to defer to Warren Buffett, who is a very well-known investor. Yeah. And one of his, what he talks about to people who are not institutional investors or experts is a quote from him is the trick is not to pick the right company. The trick is to essentially buy all of the big companies and do it consistently. And to do that, you can do that through things like index funds where the, the fund actually buys shares in all of the major companies on the S&P or the ASX. And you're not paying significant management fees like you would in a, a truly managed fund. So again, that's not financial advice. That's a, a quote from a well-known investor and yeah. something that is worth investigating for yourselves. Absolutely. And of course, if we're talking about investing, I have to ask you, what are your thoughts and have you looked into very much cryptocurrency as an investment? That was interesting. So my brother's really into cryptocurrency and uh, would be two or three years ago, he was saying, oh, get into Bitcoin and things are going to take off. And my position at the time was, well, yes, it probably is going to take off. But if I want to invest in cryptocurrency, I don't know anything about it. So I, I've had to learn about the accounting side of, of cryptocurrency, blockchain, but I don't know that much about it. 
am I going to invest in something that I don't know much about or am I going to do the research to learn about it? And then I decided, well, I'm actually better off spending that time instead of researching blockchain and cryptocurrency, I'm better off spending that time in my business. So I chose not to invest in something that I didn't know much about. And as bit, as the Bitcoin price was skyrocketing, I was kind of thinking, <laughs> oh, <laughs> kicking myself. But then I thought, no, that, that's true to my investing principles, but I think you need to know a little bit about it before you put your money there because otherwise it's just like gambling. So I could, oh, have, yeah. I could have listened to other people's opinions about why it was going to go up and, and just bought some, but I, I felt like I didn't know enough and didn't have the time to, to research. But I, I think blockchain and cryptocurrency is really interesting and we, we might actually we, – we've got someone that's interested in coming on the show to talk about that actually. Nice. Down the track. Excellent. Well, I love that you said, you know, again, with full transparency that you had some someone in your life nudging you in that direction, but you stayed true to your own philosophies. And, and you know, it's definitely one of those things. It's, it doesn't appear to be going anywhere anytime soon. So once you get all of your buckets overflowing and full, if, if you wanted to revisit that, you could. But yeah, it's an interesting um, entire new... I, I used to work for Bank of America in the investment analyst department. And um, I, 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 I wasn't there when cryptocurrency was something that banks started to actually realize they needed to learn about and facilitate. But I often think now about what in the world is going on over there that they're trying to catch up <laughs> to what, what cryptocurrency has become and, and the boom that they're having in that space. So excellent. Well, Meryl, thank you so much for another really fascinating episode and we covered so much um, i know we have some links that we'll include in the show notes any closing thoughts that you have for us i think that it's, it's important to take control of your own personal finances so you can rely on other advisors but really educate yourself about it so read read books like the barefoot investor read things from warren buffett and learn about it and also be disciplined with your spending but have fun Absolutely. Yes. Don't forget to live life. That is important. <laughs> live life today and make sure you can afford life tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to talking with you again next week. Have a great week, Meryl. Thanks, Elizabeth. As usual, a really big thank you to my co-host, Meryl Johnston, and is also the CEO and co-founder of Bean Ninjas, don't forget to check the show notes. We're going to link you to Scott Pape's Nine Steps to Financial Freedom and the Barefoot Investor we talked about in this episode, as well as a couple of blogs that Merle has written on similar topics. Don't forget to follow the uh, Bean Ninjas blog. Go there to uh, beanninjas.com forward slash blog. Follow us on Twitter at Bean Ninjas and like our Facebook page as well so you can keep in touch with all of our day-to-day -day and week-to-week -week updates. And then join us right back here next week for another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. <laughs>